This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6 L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. The necessity of reforming the church presented to the imperial diet at Spires, A.D. 1544, in the name of all who wish Christ to reign, by John Calvin, as read by Samantha Ellosais. In prayer, there are three things which we have corrected. Discarding the intercession of saints, we have brought men back to Christ that they might learn both to invoke the Father in his name and trust in him as mediator. And we have taught them to pray first, with firm and solid confidence, and secondly, with understanding also, instead of continuing as formerly, to mutter over confused prayers in an unknown tongue. Here we are assailed with bitter reproaches as at once acting contumeliously uh, toward the saints and defrauding believers of an invaluable privilege. Both charges we deny. It is no injury to saints not to permit the office of Christ to be attributed to them, and there is no honor of which we deprive them save that which was improperly and rashly bestowed upon them by human error. I will not mention anything which may not be pointed to with the finger. First, when men are about to pray, they imagine God to be at a great distance and that they cannot have access to him without the guidance of some patron. Nor is this false opinion current among the rude and unlearned only, but even those who would be thought leaders of the blind entertain it. Then, in looking out for patrons, everyone follows his own fancy. One selects Mary, another Michael, another Peter. Christ they very seldom honor with a place in the list. Nay, there is scarcely one in a hundred who would not be amazed, as at some new protege, were he to hear Christ named as an intercessor. Therefore, passing by Christ, they all trust to the patronage of saints. Then the superstition creeps in farther and farther, till they invoke the saints promiscuously just as they do God. I admit, indeed, that when they desire to speak more definitely, all they ask of the saints is to assist them before God with their prayers. But more frequently, confounding this distinction, they address and implore at one time God and at another the saints, just according to the impulse of the moment. Nay, each saint has a peculiar province allotted to him. One gives rain, another fair weather, 
one delivers from fever, another from shipwreck. But to say nothing of these profane heathen delusions which everywhere prevail in churches, this one impiety may suffice for all, that the great body of mankind, in inviting intercessors from this quarter and from that, neglect Christ, the only one whom God has set forth, and confide less in the divine protection than in the patronage of saints. But our censurers, even those of them who have somewhat more regard to equity, blame us for excess in having discarded entirely from our prayers the mention of dead saints. But will they tell me wherein, according to their view, lies the sin of faithfully observing the rule laid down by Christ, the supreme teacher, and by the prophets and apostles, and of not omitting anything which either the Holy Spirit has taught in Scripture, or the servants of God have practiced from the beginning of the world down to the days of the apostles? There is scarcely any subject on which the Holy Spirit more carefully prescribes than on the proper method of prayer. There is not a syllable which teaches us to have recourse to the assistance of dead saints. Many of the prayers offered by, up by believers are extant. None, in none of them is there even a single example of such recourse. Sometimes, indeed, the Israelites entreated God to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David likewise, but all they meant by such expressions was that he should be mindful of the covenant which he had made with them and bless their posterity according to his promise. For the covenant of grace, which was ultimately to be ratified in Christ, those holy patriarchs had received in their own name and in that of their posterity. Wherefore, the, the faithful of the Israelitish church do not, by such mention of, of the patriarchs, seek intercession from the dead, but simply appeal to the promise with, which had been deposited with them until it should be fully ratified in the hand of Christ. How extravagant, then, and infatuated to abandon the form of prayer which the Lord has recommended, and without any injunction, and with no example, to introduce into prayer the intercession of saints. But be, briefly to conclude this point, I take my stand on the declaration of Paul, that no prayer is genuine which spring, springs not from faith, and that faith cometh by the word of God. Romans 10.14 In these words he has, if I mistake not, distinctly intimated that the word of God is the only sure foundation for prayer. And while he elsewhere says, that every action of our lives should be preceded by faith, that is, a conscientious assurance, he shows that this is specially requisite in prayer, more so indeed than in any other employment. It is, however, still more conclusive of the point when he declares that prayer depends on the word of God, for it is just as if he had prohibited all men from opening their mouths until such time as God puts words into them. This is our wall of brass, which all the powers of hell will in vain attempt break attempt will in vain attempt to break down. Since then there exists a clear command to invoke God only, since again one mediator is proposed, whose intercession must support our prayers, since a promise has moreover been added that whatever we ask in the name of Christ we shall obtain, Men must pardon us if we follow the certain truth of God in preference to their frivolous fictions. 
It is surely incumbent on those who in their prayers introduce the intercessions of the dead that they may thereby be assisted more easily to obtain what they ask to prove one of two things. Either that they are so taught by the word of God or that men have license to play as they pray as they please. But in regard to the former, it is plain that they are destitute of authority from the scriptures as well as of any approved example of such intercession. While as to the latter, Paul declares that none can invoke God save those who have been taught by his word to pray. On this depends the confidence which it becomes pious minds to be actuated and imbued when they engage in in prayer. The men of the world supplicate God, dubious meanwhile of success, for they neither rely upon the promise nor perceive the force of what is meant by having a mediator through whom they will assuredly obtain what they ask. Moreover, God enjoins, enjoins us to come free from doubt, Matthew 21, verse 22. Accordingly, prayer proceeding from true faith obtains favor with God, whereas prayer accompanied with distrust rather alienates him from us. For this is the proper mark which discriminates between genuine invocation and the profane wandering prayers of the heathen. And indeed, where faith is wanting, prayer ceases to be divine worship. It is to this James refers when he asks, when he says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith, doubting nothing. For he that doubteth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the winds and tossed. James 1, James 1 verse 6 It is not surprising that he who has no interest in Christ, the true mediator, thus fluctuates in uncertainty and distrust. For as Paul declares, it is through Christ only that we have boldness and access with confidence to the Father. We have therefore taught men, when brought to Christ, no longer to doubt and waver in their prayers, as they were wont to do, but to rest secure in the word of the Lord, a word which when it, is one, when it once penetrates the soul, drives far from it all dubiety, which is repugnant to faith. It remains to point out the third fault in prayer, which I said that we have corrected. Whereas men generally prayed in an unknown tongue, we have taught them to pray with understanding. Every man accordingly is taught by our doctrine to know, when he prays in private, what it is he asks of God, while the public prayers in all our churches are framed so as to be understood by all. And it is the dictate of natural reason that it should be so. If, even if God had given no precept on the subject. For the design of prayer is to make God the conscience wi- conscious witness of our necessities, and as it were, to pour out our hearts before him. But nothing is more at variance with this design than to move the tongue without thought and intelligence. And yet, to such a degree of absurdity had it come that to pray in the vulgar tongue was almost regarded as an offense against religion. I can name an archbishop who threatened with incarceration and the severer penances the person who should repeat the Lord's Prayer aloud in any language but Latin. The general belief, however, was that it mattered not in what language a man prayed at home, provided he had what was called a final intention directed to prayer, but that in churches the dignity of the service required that Latin should be the only language in which prayers were couched. There seems, as I lately observed, 
something monstrous in this determination to hold converse with God in sounds which fall without meaning from the tongue. Even if God did not declare his displeasure, nature herself, without a monitor, rejects it. Besides, it is easy to infer from the whole tenor of Scripture how deeply God abominates such an invention. As to the public prayers of the Church, the words of Paul are clear. The unlearned cannot say Amen if the benediction is pronounced in an unknown tongue. And this makes it the more strange that those who first introduced this perverse practice ultimately had the effrontery to maintain that the very thing which Paul regards as ineffably absurd was conducive to the majesty of prayer. The method by which in our churches all pray in common in the popular tongue and males and females indiscriminately sing the psalms our adversaries may ridicule if they will provided the Holy Spirit bears testimony to us from heaven while he repudiates the confused unmeaning sounds which are elsewhere uttered. In the second principal branch of doctrine, that is, that which relates to the ground of salvation and the method of obtaining it, many questions are involved. For when we tell a man to seek righteousness in life out of himself, that is, in Christ only, because he has nothing in himself but sin and death, a controversy immediately arises with reference to the freedom and powers of the will. For, if man has any ability of his own to serve God, he does not obtain salvation entirely by the grace of God, but in part bestows it on himself. On the other hand, if the whole of salvation is attributed to the grace of Christ, man has nothing left, has no virtue of his own by which he can assist himself to procure salvation. But though our opponents concede that man in every good deed is assisted by the Holy Spirit, they nevertheless claim for him a share in the operation. This they do because they perceive not how deep the wound is which was inflicted on our nature by the fall of our first parents. No doubt they agree with us in holding the doctrine of original sin, but they afterwards modify its effects, maintaining that the powers of man are only weakened, not wholly depraved. Their view, accordingly, is that man being tainted with original corruption, is in consequence of the weakening of his powers unable to act aright. But that, being aided by the grace of God, he has something of his own and from himself which he is able to contribute. We again, though we deny not that man acts spontaneously and of free will when he is guided by the Holy Spirit, maintain that his whole nature is so imbued with depravity that of himself he possesses no ability whatever to act aright. Thus far, therefore, do we dissent from those who oppose our doctrine that while they neither humble man sufficiently nor duly esteem the blessing of regeneration, we lay, a, we lay him completely prostrate that he may become sensible of his utter insufficiency in regard to spiritual righteousness and learn to seek it not partially but wholly from God. To some not very equitable judges, we seem perhaps to carry the matter too far. But there is nothing absurd in our doctrine or at variance either with Scripture or with the general consent of the ancient Church. Nay, we are able without any difficulty to conform our doctrine to the very letter out of the mouth of Augustine. And accordingly, several of those who are otherwise disaffected to our cause, but somewhat sounder in their judgments, 
do not venture to contradict us on this head. It is certain, as I have already observed, that we differ from others only in this, that by convincing man of his poverty and powerlessness, we train him more effectually to true humility, leading him to renounce all self-confidence and throw himself entirely upon God, and that, in like manner, we train him more effectually to gratitude by leading him to ascribe, as in truth he ought, every good thing which he possesses to the, king, to the kindness of God. They, on the other hand, intoxicating him with the perverse opinion of his own virtue, precipitate his ruin, inflating him with impious arrogance against God, to whom he ascribes the glory of his justica- justification in no greater degree than to himself. To these errors they add a third, that is, that in all their discussions concerning the corruption of human nature, they usually stop short at the grosser carnal desires without touching on deeper-seated and more deadly diseases. And hence it is that those who are trained in their school easily forgive themselves the foulest sins as no sins at all, provided they are hid. The next question relates to the value and merit of works. We both render to good works their due praise, and we deny not that a reward is reserved for them with God. But we take three exceptions on which the whole of our remaining controversy concerning the work of salvation hinges. First, we maintain that of what description soever any man's works may be, he is regarded as righteous before God simply on the footing of gratuitous mercy, because God without any respect to works, freely adopts him in Christ by imputing the righteousness of Christ to him as if it were his own. This we call the righteousness of faith, that is, when a man, made void and empty of all confidence in works, feels convinced that the only ground of his acceptance with God is a righteousness which is wanting to himself and is borrowed from Christ. The point on which the world always goes astray for this error has prevailed in almost every age, is in imagining that man, however partially defective he may be, still in some degree merits the favor of God by works. But scripture declares, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Under this curse must necessarily lie all who are judged by works, none being exempted save those who entirely renounce all confidence in works and put on Christ, that they may be justified in him by the gratuitous acceptance of God. The ground of our justification, therefore, is that God reconciles us to himself from regard not to our works but to Christ alone, and by gratuitous adoption makes us, instead of children of wrath, to be his own children. So long as God looks to our works, he perceives no reason why he ought to love us. Wherefore, it is necessary to bury our sins and impute to us the obedience of Christ, because the only obedience, because the only obedience which can stand his scrutiny, and adopt us as righteous through his merits. This is the clear and uniform doctrine of Scripture witnessed, as Paul says, by the law and the prophets. Romans 3 verse 21 and so explained by the gospel that a clearer law cannot be desired Paul contrasts the righteousness of the law with the righteousness of the gospel placing the former in works and the latter in the grace of Christ Romans 10 verse 5 etc 
He does not divide it into two halves, giving works the one and Christ the other, but he has ascribed it to Christ entirely, that we are judged righteous in the sight of God. There are here two questions. First, whether the glory of our salvation is to be divided between ourselves and God. And secondly, whether, as in the sight of God, our conscience can with safety put any confidence in works. On the former question, Paul's decision is, let every mouth be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and that to declare his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3 verse 19 and following. We simply cannot, we simply follow this definition while our opponents maintain that man is not justified by the grace of God in any sense which does not reserve part of the praise for his own works. On the second question, Paul thus reasons thus, if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect. Whence he concludes, it is of faith, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Romans 4, verse 14 and 16. And again, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5, verse 1. And no longer dread his presence. And he intimates that everyone feels in his own experience that our consciences cannot but be in perpetual disquietude and fluctuation so long as we look for protection from works, and that we enjoy serene and placid tranquility then only when we have recourse to Christ as the only haven of true confidence. We add nothing to Paul's doctrine but that restless dubiety of conscience which he regards as absurd is placed by our opponents among the primary axioms of their faith. The second exception which we take relates to the remission of sins, our opponents not being able to deny that men during their whole lives walk haltingly and oftentimes even fall, are obliged, whether they will or not, to confess that all need pardon in order to supply their want of righteousness. But then they have imaginary satisfactions by means of which those who have sinned purchase back the favor of God. In this class they place first contrition and next works, and which they term works of supererogation and penances, which God inflicts on sinners. But, as they are still sensible that these compensations fall far short of the just measure required, they call in the aid of a new species of satisfaction from another quarter, namely, from the benefit of the keys. And they say that by the keys the treasury of the church is unlocked, and what is wanting to ourselves supplied out of the merits of Christ and the saints. We, on the contrary, maintain that the sins of men are forgiven freely, and we acknowledge no other satisfaction than that which Christ accomplished when by sacrifice of his death he expiated our sins. Therefore, we preach that it is the purchase of Christ alone which reconciles us to God, and that no compensations are taken into account, because our Heavenly Father, contented with the sole expiation of Christ, requires none from us. In the scriptures we have clear proof of this our doctrine, which indeed ought to be called not ours, but rather that of the Church Catholic. 
For the only method of regaining the divine favor set forth by the apostle is that he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 And in another passage where he is speaking of the remission of sins, he declares that through it righteousness without works is imputed to us. Romans 6 verse 5 We therefore strenuously yet truly maintain that their idea of meriting reconciliation with God by satisfactions and buying off the penalties due to his justice is execrable blasphemy inasmuch as it destroys the doctrine which Isaiah delivers concerning Christ that the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Isaiah 53 verse 5 the absurd fiction concerning works of supererogation we discard for many reasons, but there are two of more, more than sufficient weight. The one, that it is impossible to tolerate the idea of man being able to perform to God more than he ought, and the other, that as by the term supererogation, they for the most part understand voluntary acts of worship which their own brain has devised and which they obtrude upon God and his lost labor and pains, so far are such acts from having any title to be regarded as expiations with which appease the divine anger. Moreover, that mixing up of the blood of Christ with the blood of martyrs, and forming out of them a heterogeneous mass of merits or satisfaction, to buy off the punishments due to sin, are things which we have not tolerated and which we ought not to tolerate. For as Augustine says in his tract in Joan 84, quote, No martyr's blood has been shed for the remission of sins. This was the work of Christ alone, and in this work he has bestowed not a thing which we should imitate, but one which we should greatly receive. End of quote. With Augustine, Leo admirably accords when he thus writes, quote, Though precious in the sight of God has been the death of his many saints, yet no innocent man's slaughter was the propitiation of the world. The just received crowns did not give them, and the constancy of the faithful has furnished examples of patience, not gifts of righteousness. End of quote. Our third and last exception relates to the recompense of works, we maintaining that it depends not on their own value or merit, but rather on the mere benignity of God. Our opponents indeed admit that there is no proportion between the merit of the work and its reward, but they do not attend to what is of primary moment in the matter. That is, that the good works of believers are never so pure as that they can please without pardon. They consider not, I say, that they are always sprinkled with some spots or blemishes, because they never proceed from that pure and perfect love of God which is demanded by the law. Our doctrine, therefore, is that the good works of believers are always devoid of a spotless purity which can stand the inspection of God. Nay, that when they are tried by this strict rule of justice, they are, to a certain extent, impure. But when once God has graciously adopted believers, he not only accepts and loves their persons, but their works also, and condescends to honor them with a reward. In one word, as we said of man, so we may say of works, they are not justified, they are justified not by their own desert, but by the merits of Christ alone. 
the faults by which they would otherwise displease being covered by the sacrifice of God, of Christ. This consideration is of very great practical importance, both in retaining men in the fear of God, that they may not arrogate to their works that which proceeds from his fatherly kindness, and also in inspiring them with the best consolation, and so preventing them from giving way to despondency, when they reflect on the imperfection or impurity of their works, by reminding them that God, of his, of his paternal indulgence, is pleased to pardon it. Having considered the two he- principal heads of doctrine, we come now to the sacraments, in which we have not made any correction which we are unable to defend by sure and approved authority. Whereas seven sacraments were supposed to, be have, in- to have been instituted by Christ, we have discarded five of the number and have demonstrated them to be ceremonies of man's devising, with the exception of marriage, which we acknowledge to have been indeed commanded by God, but not in order that it might be a sacrament. Nor is it a dispute about nothing when we separate rites thus superadded on the part of men, though in other respects they should be neither wicked nor useless, from those symbols which Christ with his own lips committed to us and was pleased to make the testimonials of spiritual gifts, gifts to which, as they are not in the power of man, man, men have no right to testify. It is assuredly no vulgar matter to seal upon our hearts the sacred favor of God to offer Christ and give us visible representation of the blessings which we enjoy in him. This being the office of the sacraments, not to discriminate between them in rites or originating with man, is to confound heaven with earth. Here, indeed, a twofold error had prevailed. Making no distinction between things human and divine, they derogated exceedingly from the sacred word of God on which the whole power of the sacraments depends, while they also falsely imagined Christ to be the author of rites which had no higher than a human origin. From baptism in like manner we have rescinded many additions which were partly useless and partly from their superstitious tendency, noxious. We know the form of baptism which the apostles received from Christ, which they observed during their lifetime, and which they finally left to posterity. But the simplicity which had been approved by the authority of Christ in the practice of the apostles did not satisfy succeeding ages. I am not at present discussing whether those persons were influenced by sound reasons, who afterwards added chrism, salt, spittle, and tapers. I only say, what everyone must know, that to such a height had superstition or folly risen that more value was set on these additions than on the, than on the genuineness of baptism itself. We have studied also to banish the preposterous confidence which stopped short at the external act and paid not the least regard to Christ. For as well in the schools as in sermons, they so extolled the efficacy of signs that instead of directing men to Christ, they taught them to confide in the visible elements. Lastly, we have brought into our churches the ancient custom of accompanying the administration of the sacraments with an explanation of the doctrine contained in it, and at the same time expounding with all diligence and fidelity both their advantages and their legitimate use, so that in this respect even our opponents cannot find any ground of censure. 
But nothing is more alien to the nature of a sacrament than to set before the people an empty spectacle, unaccompanied with explanation of the mystery. There is a well-known passage quoted by Gratian out of Augustine, quote, If the word is wanting, the water is nothing but an element. End of quote. What he means by word, he immediately explains when he says, quote, That is the word of faith which we preach. End of quote. Our opponents, therefore, ought not to think it a novelty when we disapprove of mere exhibition of the mystery, for this is a sacrilegious divorce which reverses the order instituted by Christ. Another additional fault in the mode of administration commonly used elsewhere is that the thing which they consider as a religious act is not understood, just as is the case in the performance of magical incantations. I have already observed that the other sacrament of the Christian Church, the Holy Supper of our Lord, was not only corrupted but nearly abolished. Wherefore it was the more necessary for us to labor in restoring its purity. First, it was necessary to eradicate from the minds of men that impious fiction of sacrifice, the source of many absurdities. For besides the introduction of a rite of oblation in opposition to the express, express institution of Christ, there had been added a most pestilential opinion that this act of oblation was an expiation for sin. Thus, the dignity of the priesthood, which belonged exclusively to Christ, had been transferred to mortal men and the virtue of his death to their own act. Thus also it had, become, it had come to be applied in behalf of the living and the dead. We have therefore abrogated that fictitious immolation and restored communion, which had been in a very great measure obsolete. For provided men went once a year to the Lord's table, they thought it enough for all the remainder of that period to be spectators of what was done by the priest, under the pretext indeed of administering the Lord's Supper, but without any vestige of the, of the supper in it. For what are the words of, our, of the Lord? Take, he says, and distribute among yourselves. But in the Mass, instead of taking, there is a pretense of offering, while there is no distribution and even no invitation. The priest, like a member cut off from the rest of the body, prepares it for himself alone. How immense the difference between the things! We have, besides, restored to the people the use of the cup, which, though it was not only permitted, but committed to them by our Lord, was taken from them, it could only be, at the, at the suggestion of Satan. Of ceremonies there are numbers which we have discarded, partly because they multiplied out of measure, partly because some savored too much of Judaism, and others the inventions of ignorant men ill accorded with the gravity of so high a mystery. But granting that there was no other evil in them than that they had crept in through oversight, was it not a sufficient ground for their abolition that we saw the vulgar gazing upon them in stupid amazement? In condemning the fiction of transubstantiation and likewise the custom of keeping and carrying about the bread, we were impelled by a stronger necessity. First, it is repugnant to the plain words of Christ, and secondly, it is abhorrent to the very nature of a sacrament. For there is no sacrament where there, for there is no sacrament where there is no visible symbol to correspond to the spiritual truth with which it represents. And with regard to the supper, what Paul says is clear. 
we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we all are partakers of that one bread. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Where is the analogy or similitude of a visible sign in the supper to correspond to the body and blood of our Lord if it is neither bread that we eat nor wine that we drink, but only some empty phantom that mocks the eye? Add that to this fiction a worse superstition perpetually adheres, that is, that men cling to that bread as if, it, as if to God and worship it as God in the manner in which we have seen it done. While the sacrament ought to have been a means of raising pious minds to heaven, the sacred symbols of the supper were abused to an entirely different purpose, and men, contented with gazing upon them and worshipping them, never once thought of Christ. The carrying about of the bread in solemn state, or setting it on an elevated spot to be adored, are corruptions altogether inconsistent with the institution of Christ. For in the supper the Lord sets before us his body and blood, but it is in order that we may eat and drink. Accordingly, he in the first place gives the command by which he bids us take, eat, and drink, and then he, in the next place, subjoins and annexes the promise in which he testifies that what we eat is his body and what we drink is his blood. Those, therefore, who either keep the bread set apart or who carry it about to be worshipped Seeing they separate the promise from the command, in other words, sever an indissoluble tie, imagine indeed that they have the body of Christ, whereas in fact they have nothing but an idol which they have devised for themselves. For this promise of Christ, by which he offers his own body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine, belongs to those only who receive them at his hand to celebrate the mystery in the manner which he enjoins while to those who at their own hand pervert them to a different purpose, and so have not the promise, there remains nothing but their own dream. Lastly, we have revived the practice of explaining the doctrine and unfolding the mystery to the people, whereas formerly the priest not only used a strange tongue, but muttered in a whisper the words by which he pretended to consecrate the bread and wine. Here our censurers have nothing to carp at, unless it be at our having simply followed the command of Christ. For he did not by a tacit exorcism command the bread to become his body, but with clear voice declared to his apostles that he gave them his body. At the same time, as in the case of baptism, so also is the case of the Lord's Supper, we explain to the people faithfully and as carefully as we can its end, efficacy, advantages, and use. First, we exhort all to come with faith, that by means of it they may inwardly discern the things which is visibly represented, that is, the spiritual food by which alone their souls are nourished unto life eternal. We hold that in this ordinance the Lord does not promise or figure by signs anything which he does not exhibit in reality, and we therefore preach that the body and blood of Christ are both offered to us by the Lord in the supper, and received by us. Nor do we thus teach that the bread and wine are symbols without immediately adding that there is a truth which which is conjoined with them and which they represent. We are not silent in proclaiming what and how excellent the fruit is which thence redounds to us, and how noble the pledge of life and salvation which our consciences therein receive. 
None indeed who have any candor will deny that with us this solemn ordinance is much more clearly explained and its dignity more fully extolled than is ever done elsewhere. In the government of the church we do not differ from others in anything for which we cannot give a most sufficient reason. The pastoral office we have restored, both according to the apostolic rule and the practice of the primitive church, by insisting that everyone who rules in the church shall also teach. We hold that none are to be continued in the office but those who are diligent in performing its duties. In selecting them, our advice has been that more care and religion should be exercised, and we have ourselves studied so to act. It is well known what kind of examination bishops exercise by means of their suffragans or vicars, and we might even be able to conjecture what its nature is from the fruit which it produces. It is needless to observe how many lazy and good-for-nothing persons persons they everywhere promote to the honor of the priesthood. Among us, should some ministers be found of no great learning, still none is admitted who is not at least tolerably apt to teach. That all are not more perfect is is to be imputed more to the calamity of of the times than to us. This, however, is and always will be our just boast, that the ministers of our church cannot seem to have been carelessly chosen if they are compared with others. But while we are superior in a considerable degree in the manner of trial and election, in this we particularly excel, that no man holds the pastoral office amongst us without executing its duties. Accordingly, none of our churches is seen without the ordinary preaching of the word. As it would shame our adversaries to deny these facts, for in a matter so clear what could they gain by the denial, they quarrel with us, first concerning the right and power, and secondly concerning the form of ordination. They quote ancient canons, which give the superintendence of this matter to the bishops and clergy. They allege a constant succession by which this right has been handed down to them even from the apostles themselves. They deny that it can be lawfully transferred elsewhere. I wish they had, by their merit, retained a title to this boasted possession. But if we consider first the order in which for several ages bishops have been advanced to this dignity, next the manner in which they conduct themselves in it, and lastly the kind of persons whom they are accustomed to ordain, and to whom they commit the government of the churches, we shall see that this succession on which they pride themselves was long ago interrupted. The ancient canons require that he who is to be admitted to the office of bishop or presbyter shall previously undergo a strict examination both as to life and doctrine. Clear evidence of this is extant among the acts of the Fourth African Council. Moreover, the magistracy and people had a discretionary power, arbitrium, of approving or refusing the individual who was nominated by the clergy, in order that no man might be intruded on the unwilling or not consenting. Quote, Let him who is to preside over all be elected by all, for he who is appointed while unknown and unexamined must of necessity be violently intruded. End of quote, says Leo. Again, quote, Let regard be had to the attestation of the honorable, the subscription of the clergy, and the consent of the magistracy and the people. 
reason permits not any other mode of procedure. End of quote. Cyprian also contends for the very same thing, and indeed in stronger terms, affirming it as sanctioned by divine authority, that the priest be elected in presence of the people, before the eyes of all, that he may be approved as fit and worthy by the testimony of all. This rule was in force for a short time, while the state of the church was tolerable, for the letters of Gregory are full of passages which show that it was carefully observed in his day. As the Holy Spirit in Scripture imposes on all bishops the necessity of teaching, so in the ancient church it would have been thought monstrous to nominate a bishop who would not by teaching demonstrate that he was a pastor also. Nor were they admitted to the office on any other condition. The same rule prevailed in regard to presbyters, each being set apart to a particular parish. Hence those decrees, quote, Let them not involve themselves in secular affairs, let them not make distant excursions from their churches. Let them not be long absent. End of quote. Then it was enjoined by synodal decrees that at the ordination of a bishop all the other bishops of the province should assemble, or if that could not be conveniently done, at least three should be present. And the object of this was that no man might force an entrance by tumult or creep in by stealth or insinuate himself by indirect artifices. In the ordination of a presbyter, each bishop admitted a council of his own presbyters. These things, which might be narrated more fully and confirmed more accurately in the set discourse, I here only mention in passing, because they afford an easy means of judging how much importance is due to the smoke of succession with which our bishops endeavor to blind us. They maintain that Christ left as a heritage to the apostles the sole right of appointing over churches whomsoever they pleased, and they complain that we, in exercising the ministry without their authority, have, with sacrilegious temerity, invaded their province. How do they prove it? Because they have succeeded the apostles in an unbroken series. But is this enough, when all other things are different? It would be ridiculous to say so. They do say it, however. In their elections no account is taken either of life or doctrine. The right of voting has been rested, had been wrested from pe the people. Nay, even excluding the rest of the clergy, the dignitaries have drawn the whole power to themselves. The Roman pontiff, again wresting it from the provincial bishop, arrogate, arrogates it to himself alone. Then, as if they had been appointed to secular dominion, there is nothing they think they less think of than episcopal duty. In short, while they seem to have entered into a conspiracy not to have any kind of resemblance either to the apostles or the holy fathers of the church, they merely clothe themselves with the pretense that they are descended from them in an unbroken succession, as if Christ had ever enacted it into a law that whatever might be the conduct of those who presided over the church, they should be recognized as holding the place of the apostles or as if the office were some hereditary possession which transmit alike, transmits alike to the worthy and the unworthy. And then, as is said of the Milesians, they have taken precautions not to admit a single worthy person into their society. Or if, perchance, they have unawares admitted him, they do not permit him to re remain. It is of the generality I speak, 
For I deny not there are, that there are a few good men among them, who, however, are either silent from fear or not listened to. From those, then, who persecute the doctrine of Christ with fire and sword, who permit no man with impunity to speak sincerely of Christ, who in every possible way impede the course of truth, who strenuously resist our attempt to raise the church from the distressed condition into which they have brought her, who suspect all those who take a deep and pious interest in the welfare of the church and either keep them out of the ministry, or if they have been admitted, thrust them out, of such persons, forsooth, it were to be expected that they would, with their own hands, install into the office faithful ministers to instruct the people in pure religion. But since the sentiment of Gregory has passed into a common proverb that, quote, those who abuse, abuse privilege deserve to lose privilege, end of quote, they must either become entirely different from what they are and select a different sort of persons to govern the church and adopt a different method of election, or they must cease to complain that they are improperly and injuriously despoiled of what injustice belonged to them. Or if, or if they would have me to speak more plain, plainly, they must obtain their bishoprics by different means from those by which they have obtained them, that they must ordain others to the office after a different way and manner, and if they wish to be recognized as bishops, they must fulfill their duty by feeding the people. If they would retain the power of nominating and ordaining, let them restore that just and serious examination of life and doctrine which has for many ages been obsolete among them. But this one reason ought to be as good as a thousand, that is, that any man who by his conduct shows that he is an enemy of sound doctrine, whatever title he may meanwhile boast, has lost all title to authority in the church. We know what injunctions ancient councils gave, give concerning heretics, and what power they leave them. They certainly in express terms forbid any man to apply to them for ordination. No one therefore can lay claim to the right of ordaining who does not by purity of doctrine preserve the unity of the church. Now we maintain that those who in the present day under the name of bishops preside over churches not only are not faithful ministers and guardians of sound doctrine, but rather its bitterest enemies. We maintain that their sole aim is to banish Christ and the truth of his gospel and sanction idolatry and impiety, the most pernicious and deadly errors. We maintain that they, not only in word, pertinaciously impugn the true doctrine of godliness, but are infuriated against all who would rescue it from obscurity. Against the many impediments which they throw in the way, we studiously ply our labors in behalf of the church, and for so doing they expostulate us, expostulate with us as if we were making an illegal incursion into their province. As to the form or ceremony of ordination, it is, forsooth, a mighty matter about which to molest us. Because with us the hands of priests are not anointed, because we do not blow into their face, because we do not clothe them in white and such like attire, they think our ordination is not duly performed. But the only ceremony we read of, used in ancient times, was the laying on of hands. Those other forms are recent and have not to recommend them but the exceeding scrupulosity with which they are now generally observed. But what is this to the point? In matters so important, a higher than human authority is required. Hence, 
as often as the circumstances of the times demand, we are at liberty to change such rights as men have invented without express sanction, while those of more recent introduction are still less to be regarded. They put a chalice and paten into the hands of those whom they ordain to be priests. Why? That they may inaugurate them for sacrificing. But by what command? Christ never conferred this function on the apostles, nor did he ever wish it to be undertaken by their successors. It is absurd, therefore, to molest us about the form of ordination in which we differ not either from the rule of Christ or the practice of the apostles or the custom of the ancient church, whereas that form of theirs, which they accuse us of neglecting, they are not able to defend by the word of God, by sound reason, or the pretext of antiquity. On the subject of ecclesiastical regimen, there are laws of which we readily adopt such as are not snares for the conscience or such as tend to the preservation of common order. But those which had either been tyrannically imposed to hold consciences in bondage or were more subservient to superstition than to edification, we were forced to abrogate. Now our enemies first charge us with fastidiousness and undue haste and secondly accuse of accuse us of aiming at carnal indulgence by shaking off the yoke of discipline in order that we may want him as we please. But, as I have already observed, we are by no means averse to the reverent observance of whatever rules are fitted to ensure that all things be done decently and in order, while in regard to every single observance which we have abrogated, we refuse not to show cause why it behooved us so to do. Assuredly, there is no difficulty in proving that the Church labored exceedingly under a load of human traditions, and that it was necessary, if her interests were consulted, that this load should be lessened. There is a well-known complaint by Augustine, wherein he deplores it as the calamity of his time, that the Church which God in his mercy wished to be free was even then so overburdened that the condition of the Jews was more tolerable. It is probable that since that period the number has increased almost tenfold. Much more has the rigorous exaction of them increased. What then, if that holy man were now to rise and behold the countless multitude of laws under which miserable consciences groan oppressed? What if, on the other hand, he were to see the strictness with which the observance of them is enforced? Our censurers will perhaps object that we might with Augustine have lamented over anything which displeased us, but that we ought not to have applied our hand to the work of correction. This objection is easily refuted, for this pernicious error of supposing that human laws were necessary to be observed required to be corrected. As I have said, we deny not that laws enacted with a view to external policy ought to be carefully obeyed, but in regard to the regulation of the conscience, we hold that there is no legislator but God. To him alone, then, we reserve this authority, which he claims for himself in many passages of Scripture. In this matter, however, were subverted first the honor of God, from which it is impious to derogate in any degree, and secondly, genuine liberty of conscience, a liberty which, as Paul strenuously insists, must not be subjected to the will of men. As it was, therefore, our duty to deliver the consciences of the faithful from the undue bondage in which they were held, so we have taught that they are free and unfettered by human laws, 
and that this freedom which was purchased by the blood of Christ cannot be infringed. If anyone thinks we are blamable in this, he must attribute the same blame to Christ and his apostles. I do not yet enumerate the other evils which compelled us to set our face against human traditions. I will mention only two, and I am confident that after I have mentioned them all impartial readers will be satisfied. The one is that as some of these traditions demanded things which it was impossible to perform, their only effect was to lead men to hypocrisy or plunge them into despair. And the other, that all of them had practically realized what our Savior rebuked in the Pharisees. They had made the commandments of God of none effect. I will here adduce examples by which this will be made more clear. There are three things in particular for which they are offended with us. First, that we have given liberty to eat flesh on any day. Secondly, that we have permitted marriage to priests. And third, that we have rejected the secret confession which was made in a priest's ear. Let our opponents ask answer honestly, Is not the man, man who may have tasted flesh on Friday punished more severely than the man who may have spent the whole year in a constant course of lewdness? Is it not deemed a more capital offense in a priest to marry than to be caught a hundred times in adultery? Do they not pardon him who has contemned many of the divine precepts on easier terms than him who may have neglected once a year to confess his sins into the ears of a priest? It is not monstrous, I ask, that it should seem a slight and venial offense to violate the holy law of God and that it should be judged an, ex an, an inexpiable crime to transgress the decrees of men. The case, I admit, is not without precedent. For, as I have already observed, the wickedness with, 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 with which our Savior charges the Pharisees is, Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect through your tradition. Matthew 15, verse 6 Moreover, the arrogance of Antichrist of which Paul speaks is that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4 For where is the incomparable majesty of God after mortal man has been exalted to such a height that his laws take precedence of God's eternal decrees? I omit that an apostle describes the prohibition of meat and of marriage as a doctrine of devils. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1-3 That is surely bad enough, but the crowning impiety is to set man in a higher rank than God. If they deny the truth of my statement, I appeal to fact. Then, what are those two laws of celibacy and auricular confession but dire murderers of souls? As all the ministers of their churches vow perpetual chastity, it becomes unlawful for them, even ever after, from the terms in which the vow is conceived, to take wives. What then, if one has not received the gift of continence? Quote, there must be no exception here, end of quote, is the answer. But experience shows how much better it would have, would have been never to have imposed this yoke upon priests than to shut them up in a furnace of lust, to burn with a perpetual flame. Our adversaries recount the praises of virginity. They recount also the advantages of celibacy, in order to prove that priests have not been rashly interdicted from marrying. They even talk of it as decent and honorable. But will they by all these things prove the lawfulness of fettering consciences 
which Christ not only left free and unfettered, but whose freedom he has vindicated by his own authority and at the price of his own blood? Paul does not presume to do so. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 35 Whence then this new license? Then, though virginity be extolled to the skies, what has this to do with the celibacy of priests, with whose obscenity the whole air is tainted? If the chastity which they profess in word they also exhibit it in deed, then perhaps I might allow them to say that it is comely so to do. But when every man knows that the prohibition of marriage is only a license to priests to commit gross sin, with what face I dare ask, I ask, dare they make any mention of comeliness? As to those whose infamy is not notorious, that it may not be necessary for me to discuss the matter with them at length, I leave them to the tribunal of God, that there they may talk of their chastity. It will be said that this law is imposed on none but those who vow spontaneously. But what greater necessity can be imagined than that by which they are forced to vow? The condition announced to all is that none shall be admitted to the priesthood who has not previously, by vow, bound himself to perpetual celibacy, and that he who has vowed must be forced, even against his will, to perform what he has once undertaken, that no excuse for the contrary can be listened to. Still, they maintain that a celibacy is exacted, so exacted is voluntary. But while many rhetoricians may be allowed to detail the disadvantages of marriage and the advantages of celibacy, that by declaiming on such topics in the schools they may improve their style, nothing they say will prove the propriety of leading miserable consciences into a deadly snare in which they must perpetually rise till they are strangled. And the ridiculous part is that amidst, amidst all this flagitious turpitude, even hypocrisy finds a place. For whatever their conduct may be, they deem themselves better than others for the simple reason that they have no wives. The case is the same with confession, for they number up the, tra the advantages which follow from it. We, on the contrary, are equally prepared to point out not a few dangers which are justly to be dreaded, and to refer to numerous most grievous evils which have actually flowed from it. These, I say, are the kind of arguments which both parties may employ. But the perpetual rule of Christ which cannot be changed or bent in this direction or in that, nay, which cannot without impiety be controverted, is that conscience must not be brought into bondage. Besides, the law on which our opponents assist insist is one which can only torture souls and ultimately destroy them for it requires every individual to confess all his sins once a year to his own priest when this is not done it leaves him no hope of obtaining pardon it has been experimentally found by those who have made the trial seriously that is in the true fear of god that it is not possible thus to confess even a hundredth part of our sins the consequence was that not having any mode of extricating themselves, they were driven to despair. Those again who desired to satisfy God in a more careless manner found this confession a complete cloak for hypocrisy. For thinking that they obtained an acquittal at the bar of God as soon as they had disgorged their sins into the ear of a priest, they were bold to sin more freely in consequence of the expeditious mode in which they were disburdened. Then, having in their minds a fixed persuasion 
that they fulfilled what the law enjoined, they thought that of whatever sort the enumeration might be, it comprehended all their sins, though in point of fact it did not embrace the thousandth part. See then on what ground our adversaries vociferate that we have destroyed the discipline of the church, simply because we have studied to succor miserable, miserable consciences when perishing under the pressure of, the mo- of a most cruel tyranny and dragging hypocrites out of their lurking places into open day that they might both examine themselves more closely and begin to have a better idea of the divine justice which they formerly evaded. But someone will say that however numerous the abuses and however deserving of correction, still laws in other respects sacred and useful and in a manner consecrated by a high antiquity ought not to have been thus abolished instantly and altogether. In regard to the eating of flesh, my answer, my simple answer is that the doctrine we hold accords with that of the ancient church, in which we know that it was free to eat flesh at all times or to abstain from it. The prohibition of the marriage of priests I admit to be ancient, as is also the vow of perpetual continence taken by nuns and monks. But if they concede that the declared will of God outweighs human custom, why, when perfectly aware that the will of God is with us and clearly supports our view, do they seek to quarrel with us about antiquity? The doctrine is clear. Marriage is honorable in all. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Paul expressly speaks of bishops as husbands, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and Titus 1, verse 6. As a general rule, he enjoins marriage on all of a particular temperament and classes the interdiction of marriage among the doctrines of devils, 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. What avails it, what avails it to set human custom in opposition to the clear declarations of the Holy Scripture unless men are to be preferred to God? and it is of importance to observe how unfair judges they are who in this matter allege against us the practice of the ancient church. Is there any antiquity of the church, either earlier or of higher authority, than the days of the apostles? But our opponents will not deny that at the time marriage was permitted to all the ministers of the church and used by them. If the apostles were of opinion that priests ought to be restrained from marrying, Why did they defraud the church of so great a boon? Yet after them, about 250 years elapsed until the Council of Nice, when, as Sozomen relates, the question of enjoining enjoining celibacy on ministers was agitated, but by the interference of Paphnutius, the whole affair went off. For it is related that after he, being himself a bachelor, had declared that a law of celibacy was not to be tolerated, the whole council readily assented to this opinion. But superstition gradually increasing, the law, which was then repudiated, was at length enacted. Among those canons, which, as well from their antiquity as the uncertainty of their author, author, bear the name of apostolical, there is one who does not permit any clerical persons except singers and readers to marry, after they have been admitted to office. But by a previous canon, priests and deacons are prohibited from putting away their wives under the pretext of religion. And in the fourth canon of the Council of Gangra, anathema is pronounced against those who made a difference between a married and an unmarried clergyman so as to absent themselves when he officiated. 
Hence, it appears that there was still in those times considerably more equity than a subsequent age manifested. Here, however, it was not my intention to discuss this subject fully. I only thought it proper to indicate in passing that the primitive and purer church is not in this matter so adverse to us as our enemies pretend. But grant that it is, why do they accuse us as fiercely as if we were confounding things sacred and profane, or as if we could not easily retort against them that we accord far better with the ancient church than they do? Marriage, which the ancient priests, which the ancients denied to priests, we allow. What do they say to the licentiousness which has everywhere obtained among them? They will deny that they approve it. But if they were desirous to obey the ancient canons, it would become them to chastise it more severely. The punishment which the council of Neo Caesarea inflicts on a presbyter who married was deposition, while one guilty of adultery or fornication it punishes far more severely, adding to deposition excommunication also. In the present day, the marriage of a priest is deemed a capital crime, while for his hundred acts of whoredom he is mulcted into a small sum of money. Doubtless, if those who first passed the law of celibacy were now alive, instructed by present experience, they would be the first to abrogate it. However, as I have already said, it would be the height of injustice to condemn us on the authority of men in a matter in which we are openly acquitted by the voice of God. With regard to confession, we have a briefer and readier defense. Our opponents cannot show that the necessity of confessing was imposed earlier than Innocent III. For twelve hundred years this tyranny for which they contend with us so keenly was unknown to the Christian world. But there is a decree of the Lateran Council, true, but of the same description as many others. Those who have any tolerable knowledge of history are aware of the equal ignorance and ferocity of those times. This, indeed, is in accordance with the common observation that the most ignorant governors are always the most imperious. But all pious souls will bear me witness in what a maze those must be entangled who think themselves obliged by that law. To this cruel torturing of consciences has been added the blasphemous presumption of making it essential to the remission of sin, for they pretend that none obtain pardon from God but those who are disposed to confess. What is this, pray, but for men to prescribe at their own hand the mode in which a sinner is reconciled to God, God offering pardon simply while they withhold it until a condition which they have added shall have been fulfilled? On the other hand, the people were possessed with this most pernicious superstition, that is, that as soon as they had disburdened themselves of their sins, by pouring them into the ear of a priest, they were completely freed from guilt. This opinion many abused to a more unrestrained indulgence in sin, while even those who were more influenced by the fear of God paid greater regard to the priest than to Christ. That public and solemn acknowledgment, exomologesis, as Cyprian calls it, which penitents were anciently obliged to make when they were to be reconciled to the church, there is no sane man who does not commend and willing, willingly adopt, provided it be not stretched to some other end than that for which it was instituted. In short, we have no controversy in this matter with the ancient church. We only wish, as we ought, to rid the necks of believers of a modern tyranny of recent date. 
Besides, when any person, in order to obtain consolation and counsel, visits his minister in private, and familiarly deposits in his breast the causes of his anxiety, anxiety, we by no means object, provided it is done freely, and not of constraint. Let every man, I say, be left at liberty to do in this matter what he feels to be expedient for himself. Let no man's conscience be tied down by fixed laws. I hope your imperial majesty and you, most illustrious princes, will be satisfied with this apology. It is certainly just. But how deservedly soever we complain that the doctrine of truth was corrupted and the whole body of Christianity sullied by numerous blemishes, still our censurers deny that this was cause sufficient for so disturbing the church and in a manner convulsing the whole world. We indeed are not so stupid as not to perceive how desirable it is to avoid public tumults, nor so savage as not to be touched, and even to shudder in our inmost soul on beholding the troubled condition in which the church now is. But with what fairness is the blame of existing commotions imputed to us, when they have not been in the least degree excited by us? Nay, with what face is the crime of disturbing the church laid to our charge by the very persons who obviously are the authors of all these disturbances? This is just the case of the wolves complaining of the lambs. When Luther at first appeared, he merely touched with a gentle hand a few abuses of the grossest description, now grown intolerable, and he did it with a modesty which intimated that he had more desire to see them corrected than determination to correct them himself. The opposite party forthwith sounded to arms, and when the contention was more and more inflamed, our enemies deemed it the best and shortest method to suppress the truth by cruelty and violence. Accordingly, when our people challenged them to friendly discussion and desired to settle disputes by calm argument, they were cruelly persecuted with sanguinary edicts until matters had been brought to the present miserable pass. Nor is this calumny against us without precedent, with the very same charge which we are now forced to hear wicked Ahab once upbraided Elijah, that is, that he was the disturber of Israel. But the holy prophet by his reply acquitted us. I, says he, have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. First Kings 18, verse 17 and 18. It is unfair, therefore, to load us with odium on account of the fierce contest concerning religion, which this day rages in Christendom, unless, indeed, it be thought proper first to condemn Elijah, with whom we have a common defense. His sole excuse is that he had fought only to vindicate the glory and restore the pure worship of God, and he retorts the charge of exciting contention and disturbances upon those who stirred up tumult as a means of resisting the truth. And what is it that we have done hitherto, and what do we even now, but strive that the one God may be worshipped amongst us, and that his simple truth may reign in the church? If our adversaries deny this, let them at least convict us of an impious doctrine before they charge it upon us as a fault that we dissent from others. For what were we to do? The only terms on which we could purchase peace were to betray the truth of God by silence, though indeed it would not have been enough to be silent unless we had also by tacit consent 
approved of impious doctrine, of open blasphemies against God, and the most degrading superstitions. What else, then, at the very least, could we do than testify with a clear voice that we had no fellowship with impiety? We have, therefore, simply studied to do what was our duty. That matters have blazed forth into such hostile strife is an evil, the blame of which must rest with those who chose to confound heaven and earth rather than give a place to pious and sound doctrine, their object being, by whatever means, to keep possession of the tyranny which they had usurped. It ought to be sufficient, and more than sufficient, for our defense that the sacred truth of God, in asserting, in asserting which we sustain so many contests, is on our side, whereas our adversaries, in contending with us, were not so much against us as God himself. Then it is not of our own accord that we engage in this fervor of contention. It is their intemperance which has dragged us in, into it against our expectation. Let the result, then, have been what it may, there is no reason why we should be loaded with hatred. For as it is not ours to govern events, neither is it ours to prevent them. But there is an ancient practice which the wicked have resorted to in all ages, that is, to take occasion from the preaching of the gospel to excite tumult, and then to defame the gospel as the cause of dissension, dissension which, even in the absence of opportunity, they wickedly and eagerly court. And, as in the primitive church the prophecy behooved to be fulfilled, that Christ should be to his own countrymen a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, so it is not surprising if the same thing holds true in our time also. It may well indeed be thought strange for the builders to reject the stone which ought to occupy the principal place in the foundation, but as this happened at the beginning, in the case of Christ, let it not surprise us that it is also a common event in the present day. Here I entreat your imperial majesty and you most illustrious princes that as oft as this unhappy rending of the church and the other countless evils which have sprung from dissension either occur to your own thoughts or are suggested by others, you would at the same time call to mind that Christ has been set up as a sign to be spoken against and that his gospel, wherever it is preached, instantly inflames the rage and resistance of the wicked. Then, from conflict, a shock must necessarily ensue. Hence, the uniform fate of the gospel from its first commencement has been and always will be, even unto the end, to be preached in the world amid great contention. But it is the part of the prudent to consider from what source the evil springs. Whoever does this will readily free us from all blame. It certainly behooved us to bear testimony to the truth as we have done, Woe to the world if it chooses to challenge Christ to combat rather than embrace the peace which he offers. The man who will not bear to be corrected will undoubtedly be crushed by him. And here again it is objected that all the corruptions of the church are not to be corrected by such harsh remedies, but they are not to be cut in to the quick, that not even is medicine to be applied to all, but some are to be treated gently and others submitted to, if they cannot without difficulty be removed. I answer that we are not so unacquainted with ordinary life as not to know that the church always has been and always will be liable to some defects which the pious are indeed bound to disapprove, but which are to be borne rather than be made a cause of fierce contention. 
But our adversaries are unjust when they accuse us of being excessively morose, as if we had brought the church into trouble on account of small and trivial errors. For to their other misinterpretations they add this one also, of endeavoring by every artifice in their power to extenuate the importance of the things which we have made the subject of controversy, the object being to make it seem that we have been hurried on by a love of quarreling and not that we were drawn into it by a just cause. This they do not in ignorance, but with cunning design, namely because they know that there is nothing more odious than the rash haste which they impute to us. And yet they at the same time betray their own impiety in speaking so contemptuously of matters of the greatest moment. And it is indeed so that when we complain that the worship of God was profaned, that his honor was utterly impaired, that the doctrine of salvation was entangled with numerous destructive errors, that the virtue of Christ's death was suppressed, and that, in short, all things sacred were sacrilegiously polluted, is it indeed so that we are to be derided and charged with the folly of disturbing ourselves and the whole world besides to no purpose, with disputes about insignificant questions? But as a cursory glance at these things is not sufficient, it will now be necessary more diligently to explain to you the dignity and importance of the points in dispute, so as to make it manifest not only that they were not unworthy of notice, but that we could not possibly overlook them without involving ourselves in the greatest guilt and becoming chargeable with impious perfidy towards God. This is the third of the three heads which I, of which at the outset I propose to treat. First, then, I wish to know with what face they can call themselves Christians when they charge us with rashly disturbing the church with disputes about matters of no importance. For if they set as much value on our religion as the ancient idolaters did on their superstitions, they would not speak so contemptuously of zeal for its preservation, but in imitation of idolaters, would give it the precedence of all other cares and business. For when idolaters spoke of fighting for their altars and their hearts, they alleged what they believed to be the best and strongest of all causes. Our opponents, on the contrary, regard as almost superfluous a contest which is undertaken for the glory of God and the salvation of men. For it is not true, as has been alleged, that we dispute about a worthless shadow. The whole substance of the Christian religion is brought into question. For nothing else involved is the eternal and inviolable truth of God, that truth to which he rendered so many illustrious testimonies in confirming which so many holy prophets and so many martyrs met their death, truth heralded and witnessed by the Son of God himself and ultimately sealed with his blood. Is that truth of so little value that it may be trampled underfoot? while we look on and are silent? But I descend to particulars. We know how execrable a thing idolatry is in the sight of God, and history abounds with narratives of the dreadful punishments with which he visited it, both in the Israelitish people and in other nations. From his own mouth we hear the same vengeance denounced against all ages, for to us he speaks when he swears by his holy name that he will not suffer his glory to be transferred to idols, and when he declares that he is a jealous God, taking vengeance to the third and fourth generation upon all sins, and more especially on this one.
This is the sin on account of which Moses, who was otherwise of so meek a temper, being inflamed by the Spirit of God, ordered the Levites to go in and out from every gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. Exodus 32 verse 27 The sin on account of which God so often punished his chosen people, afflicting them with sword, pestilence, and famine, and in short all kinds of calamity, the sin on account of which especially the kingdom first of Israel and then of Judah, was laid waste, Jerusalem, the holy city, destroyed, the temple of God, the only temple then existing in the world, laid in ruins, and the people whom he had selected out of all the nations of the earth to be peculiarly his own, entering into covenant with them, that they alone might bear his standard and live under his rule and protection, the people, in short, from whom Christ was to spring, were doomed to all kinds of disaster, stripped of all dignity, driven into exile, and brought to the brink of destruction. It were too long here to give a full detail, for there is not a page in the prophets which does not proclaim aloud that there is nothing which more provokes the divine indignation. What then? When we saw idolatry openly and everywhere stalking abroad, were we to connive at it? To have done so would have just been to rock the world in its sleep of death that it might not awake. Be pleased, most invincible Caesar and most illustrious princes, to call to mind the many corruptions by which, as I have already shown, the worship of God was polluted, and you will assuredly find that impiety had broken out like a deluge under which religion was completely submerged. Hence, divine honors were paid to images and prayers everywhere offered to them under the pretense that the power and deity of God resided in them. Hence, too, dead saints were worshipped exactly in the manner in which, the old, in, in which of old the Israelites worshipped Balaam. And by the artifice, artifice of Satan, numerous other modes had been devised by which the glory of God was torn to pieces. The Lord exclaims that he burns with jealousy when any idol is erected, and Paul demonstrates by his own example that his servants should be zealous in asserting his glory. Acts 17, verse 16 It is no common zeal for the house of God which ought to penetrate and engross the hearts of believers. When, therefore, the divine glory was polluted or rather lacerated in so many ways, would it not have been perfidy if we had winked or been silent? A dog, seeing any violence offered to his master, will instantly bark. Could we, in silence, see the sacred name of God dishonored so blasphemously? In such a case, how could it have been said, The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me? Psalm 69, verse 9 This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discount, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax, 
at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalogue.